Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I'm talking to the designer, educator, architect, Justin W. Cook. This conversation feels like it's part of a series of interviews about strategic design and the Helsinki Design Lab. Justin worked with Brian Boyer and Dan Hill, who you uh, may remember as former guests of the podcast, at Helsinki, and this conversation in so many ways picks up where those two conversations began. Justin is currently on faculty at RISD, where he runs an new initiative called the Complexity Lab and is really thinking about these ideas around strategic design and systems and organizations within an academic context. And we talk about all of this, how he started teaching and how to think about design in this sort of uh, kind of educational framework and the work that he's doing at RISD now. But Justin originally studied architecture and worked as an architect for a while. And so we also talk about that and the value of an architecture degree and its relationship to his current research interests. This was a, it was just a really fascinating conversation for me that covers a lot of ground. If you liked my conversations with Brian and Dan, you will also love this one, I think. And if you're at all interested in thinking about design at truly the widest sense, Justin has thought really deeply about that. And I felt like I walked away from this conversation just with my head spinning with ideas and new things to think about. I think you're really going to like it. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. These memberships help keep the podcast going. I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Justin W. Cook. doing some research on you and kind of thinking about the things that I wanted to talk about. And obviously, my interest in you came from my conversations with uh, Brian Boyer and Dan Hill, uh, and their work specifically around this idea of strategic design. And I noticed when I was researching you and, and thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about is that you also have a background in architecture. Uh, and so I kind of want to start there. Um, did you, where did that interest come from? Did you want to be an architect? Did you want to kind of design buildings? What was that? What was kind of your goal when you were, when you were studying that? Yeah. So I had an indirect pathway into architecture. So I, from the very beginning, I I remember wanting to become a a surgeon. Oh, and so. Yeah. And so I, I went into school um, and this was at University of Washington in Seattle and there wasn't a pre-med program. So I enrolled in a cellular and molecular biology oh, program geez. and um, I felt that that was obviously too skewed toward hard science. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did a dual degree in English literature. And I I got quite far through um, the biology degree into organic chemistry, which seems to be the crucible through which most, you know, physicians either make it or not. Yeah. Um, And I ended up just deciding that, um, I I don't know, there wasn't a way to make sense of what I was on, what I was learning the same way that I could with English literature. And so I, I started looking around for other opportunities within UW and trying to think about, you know, what, what the future could be. Um, and actually my grandmother mentioned architecture and it's strange that I had never thought of it before because I come from a family of builders. My father was a a master carpenter. Mm. Um, my uncle built some of the nicest homes around Tacoma and Seattle, Washington, um, you know, plumbers, but it, it's a, it's a, it's a, a family that really pays very right. close attention to craft. And, um, but I had never thought of architecture as any kind of career pathway. Uh, it just didn't register cause I was so focused on medicine. Yeah. So I, so I started, uh, in the, there's a, a few introductory classes that you have to take. Um, to get into the undergrad architecture program at UW, um, most of which are taught by Frank Ching or Francis Ching, um, who did, of course, this, the famous design drawing series. Oh, uh, right. And I excelled at uh, drawing, you know, 
I just I remember doing an orthogonal, orthogonal drawing of a fishing reel and other things like that that, <laughs> yeah. were, that were necessary for me to um, apply to the program. And I got in and I, I just, I loved it. Uh, and, nice. and, you know, continued the English literature and graduated, went, in, went into a design build firm for a few years, which in Seattle at that time was a really vibrant uh, way to practice architecture. Mm. Um, it's not the kind of, you know, design build that you see at scale in big construction companies. It's very much like pencil and hammer simultaneously. And then went to work for a little while as a, um, you know, a junior architect in a mega firm in Seattle. Uh, <laughs> did not like that. Went back and <laughs> design build, um, right. and applied, applied to the GSD and, um, yeah, went from there. That's really interesting. I have two questions kind of based on that, that are completely unrelated. Um, the two questions are unrelated. I'm curious about the studying English literature. You kind of just threw that in there kind of off on the side. Was that, where did that come from? Did, were you interested in writing and reading or how did that, how that fit into all of this? I mean, I, the, the narrative that I have that I tell myself is that, <laughs> yeah. um, that it was a, a way to balance, uh, the, the biology, uh, okay. degree. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I remember reading, um, like Michael Crichton mm -hmm. as a kid mm -hmm. and he sort of spanned that medical, right. Uh, literature space neatly. He was also trained as a surgeon or at least a physician, if I remember correctly. Um, so that probably informed some of that. Um, but I, I think I was also just deeply interested in trying to understand the human experience. Although I, I had to become, a, you know, an English major to use that phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I found that um, rather than say anthropology, and I did take some anthropology classes. Uh, that the English literature was a very vivid way to access uh, the, the human experience. And so that's, that's really what, okay. what kept me interested. And then when your grandmother recommended architecture <laughs> and, and, you know, and you, and you, you kind of said how you, how you're surprised you didn't think about it. What was, you know, what was your reaction to that? And when you started taking the classes and saw that you were, you know, pretty good at it, was it an immediate, like, Oh yeah, this is, this is yeah. the thing. Yeah, it was. Okay. It, it, it absolutely was. Yeah. I mean, the, for one thing, I, I went from an organic chemistry class of one professor to 300 students to a studio of, right. you know, Frank Ching and 10 of us, which is just, you know, especially at that age, it's a transformative kind of learning experience because really even in AP English, um, in, high school there it's still a class of 25 so right. to really have this kind of intimate engaged right. really mentorship uh that hooked me but the the drawing hooked me the access to the shop hooked me I mean, there's so many things that um i mean they had better the building was a much nicer building than uh <laughs> you know the, yeah, yeah. the biology building so i, I don't know it just it, it was a kind of ecosystem of things that turned me on to architecture that, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So when you so you, I, I just want to follow this timeline for for a bit before we kind of start talking about your current work. So you you went to work at a larger firm and didn't like that, and it was kind of right after that that you decided to go back to school. You went to Harvard. Was that right after that? Pretty much, yeah. So I I was working there. Um, actually, I remember shipping my portfolio to Harvard and Yale and all the others out of the shipping department um, oh, nice. at the firm. So I was definitely there. It was, you know, this is before the collapse, well before the collapse, probably 2003, okay. I would think. Um, okay. And at the time, they were running um, a, a division called program management, which was basically doing you know, repetitive banks, uh, and other mm -hmm. things like, mm -hmm. especially Washington mutuals, which at the time was expanding at an insane rate. Um, but they were benefiting mightily from that 
that expansion. And so the, the work was, you know, going to some former KFC in Texas somewhere and, you know, sticking a bank in there. Right. <laughs> so well, that's obviously that it was quite a departure from yeah. the, the intimacy of design build. But on the other hand, what they, what I did learn there is a, a, um, a rigorous approach to the, the production of the documents that enable efficient building like that. Oh. That was a big takeaway and, and it was incredibly rigorous and they had very few, um, change orders as a result of that process. So that, that oh, was valuable. Yeah. Then I, um, decided that it was time for an advanced degree. So the, the undergraduate okay. program at, at UW is not a, a BARC. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, it's a Bachelor's of Architectural Studies. So um, I knew that in order to um, advance as an architect, obviously I had to do a higher degree, and I was interested in doing that in any case. Okay, yeah, great. That was my exact next question was kind of why you thought more education was next. So you were going into that program thinking you're going to do this and then kind of go back to architecture? Yes, yeah, very much so. Okay, so then how did you, you know, I'm curious kind of how, I'm going to ask a, a really big question only because I don't know how else to ask it and then we can kind of parse it out as we go. Um, and I don't mean to kind of jump over, you know, kind of a large part of your career, but I'm curious how much of your current work is architecture related. And I'm saying that in kind of architecture, the in the kind of traditional sense that you you were interested in. And the reason I ask that is because I'm kind of curious, I guess the sub question to this is how you started to move away from kind of designing buildings into teaching, into strategic design, all of that sort of thing. So I realize that's a big question, um, but can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, so my current work, it's, if you're talking about architecture as it relates to buildings, I would say it's hardly related to that okay. <laughs> anymore. Okay. Um, but architecture as a teaching tool um, mm -hmm. is something that I, I use quite a bit and as a, a way to understand um, how to in, engage problems, engage systems. And we, we can get into this later, but um I, I would say I access my architecture training constantly. Okay. Uh, but, the, but the actual work uh, related to the construction of buildings, I, I have a farm in Maine and I go and I do my architecture thing up there. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so I stay connected to building and to design, but not, um, not directly. Although I, I have taught uh, in the adaptive reuse program here at RISD, um, uh, a few graduate level studios and that <clears throat> that was actually a desire on my part to reconnect with practice with architectural practice and and discourse because i i had you know i was so immersed in the literature and um the debates um mm -hmm. the broader architectural discourse for especially while at the gsd and i, I had by necessity had to sort of leave that behind because i needed to gain new areas of knowledge. Um, and so I, I felt a desire to reconnect with that. And so I, I did that through teaching. When did you start teaching? Was that right after you had finished at Harvard or how did that come in? No, no. So teaching came later. Um, I, I taught first studio at RISD in 2014. Oh, okay. Finished. Yeah. I finished the GSD in 2008, just before the crash. So, oh, okay. um, Interesting. no, it, it, it really came later and it was, um, it was while I was working at the Finnish Innovation Fund that I that I started teaching. Okay, so let's all right. So let's come back to teaching later then, because I I for some reason had thought that teaching came before um, the Finnish Innovation Fund. So how did you get connected with them and, and with those guys there? Well, this gets to how did I stop? Okay, <laughs> you know, being on a, a architecture trajectory. Um, so. My my first studio at the GSD was actually with Brian. He sat very close to me, Brian Boyer. And yeah. um, our professor then was Marco Steinberg, right. uh, oh, okay. who 
is one of my um, yeah very favorite uh, critics. I, I was just describing what distinguished him at the GSD to a colleague of mine, and it, and it was the how sort of nutrient dense his critique was, how how rich it was. It was just it was a standout, and so I thought, okay, this this guy is doing interesting work. He has an amazing view on the world, and so after that studio. I came to him and I said, hey, if there's anything you want to work on, I'd love to work on it with you. And at that time, you know, I was thinking it would be, I don't know, something to do with lighting or who knows what. Um, but in 2005, 2006, uh, he brought a few of us in and said that, you know, he had begun um, a research project into ischemic stroke where you have a blockage in your brain and would any of us be interested? And mm. for me, of course, this right. reaches into my interest as a physician and, oh, that's and interesting. in healthcare. Um, so it was an, an immediate yes, um, because it was Marco that was the PI and it was a healthcare related problem. Huh. Um, and so that project really, uh, that, as I often say, that's the thing that destroyed my architecture career. <laughs> right. hap, hap, in a way, happily so, at least as far as, I can evaluate how that career would have gone, but oh, but that project was really um, uh, there was no return yeah. from that um, except through teaching. So did you? So you didn't have any um, any hard feelings about kind of leaving that career that you thought you were going to have? Uh, it was like a very kind of no brainer. Like, yeah, I'm going to go do this other thing. I mean. Uh, yeah, yes and no. So it wasn't a, you know, I still had two years of school left. So it, it wasn't just a, a lights on off kind of okay, process. Okay. It, was more, it was more gradual. But later on, I definitely um, considered it. Uh, and, you know, I, I still often think about, do I need to actually go through licensure so I can close that chapter of my life? But then I just have to pay end card and card right. whoever it is every right. year to maintain that license so I, I have never done that but um and I, there's really at this point no reason to but I, right. I do feel um that that was sort of left a bit open-ended um but you know i've i've made peace with that but i i haven't really no i haven't really regretted it it's but it it, it introduces a whole uh, host of challenges because you you immediately enter into a non-linear career pathway. Right. And there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty that, that comes with that. Right. I, I, I want to try to, you, you said a couple things that I find really interesting that I want to try to cohere into a, a, a clear question. So bear with, bear with me for a second. Um, but I'm, I, I think it's interesting that this project with Marco was healthcare, you know, kind of healthcare related and really echoed back to your early interest in being a surgeon and something and then you you also mentioned how a lot of the work you're doing you're pulling from your architecture education even if it's not designing buildings and I'm I'm kind of interested in that relationship between the the surgeon path and the architecture path I guess and and how an art did you see overlaps there like even back when you made that kind of definite shift from studying that to studying architecture and then is there something about architecture that would would let architects or the way an architect thinks even tackle this problem that you were tackling with with Marco you know what I'm you know what I mean okay yeah so to to the first question um as I mentioned my my father's a builder and um so i he and i framed a house together when i was 13 um and i sort of continued in carpentry after that and in fact i think my my first tortured sentence of my <laughs> ap- my application to harvard was something like i've been a carpenter since 13 <laughs> something like that yeah. but but i had always really enjoyed making and um, and doing it precisely, uh, you know, um, there's there are some carpenters, especially framers, who say 
there's no eighth inch marks on your measuring tape. Mm. Meaning, you know, if you're within a quarter inch, it's close enough. <laughs> okay. And I, and I had always loved tight fitting framing and that's like what my, my father was really good at. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. when we, when we framed this, there's this uh, house that was connected to a, a older house and the, the roof framing between the old house and the new house was really complicated. And I remember the um, client coming home to see us working on this. And he was like, there's no way we can put sheetrock over this. It's just too beautiful. This, mm. this framing. Um, and I, I always understood that, you know, in a, in a surgery practice that it's not a dissimilar right. act. I mean, right. it's, you know, it's, it's bigger tools. Uh, it's, I, I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily messy or, um, <laughs> surgery is pretty messy. Um, yeah. it's, it is lower stakes of course, but there's a lot of similarities I think between, uh, at least the act of surgery and the act of carpentry. Yeah. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense now that you say that. Yeah. And so that, that's, that seemed quite like I, I remember before, uh, I was deep into the, um, biology degree trying to evaluate if I could be a good surgeon, which, you know, is, is a very abstract thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, the way that I gave my, self-confidence was to say well i know how to build well and mm. um so perhaps um and to this to the second question um so that this we call it the stroke project and you know the stroke project at that time there hadn't been any helsinki design lab yet at least as we knew it um design thinking didn't really exist yet so much, uh, or at least it wasn't as popular as it is today. Um, I mean, again, this is sort of yeah. 2005, 2006 strategic design. I'm sure didn't have a Wikipedia page back <laughs> that it has much of now, but so we went into that with our architecture skills, mm. right? We didn't mm -hmm. go into it with like a strategic design approach because we didn't have that. Um, we didn't have access to that. So, you know, at that time we talk a lot about, um, uh, you know, using visualization and synthesis and mm -hmm. trying to understand context in the same way that you'd understand a site in architecture and how, you know, all of these various forces converge on that site either to, um, well, usually to uh, complicate building a building. Um, but, you know, we, we sort of evaluated this problem, um, not as a healthcare problem, but as a, as a structural problem. And we did uh, that use uh, the, you know, the tools that we were either learning at the time uh, as students at the GSD or had learned before, or that, that we had already, uh, in the case of Marco, gained as a, as an architect. So, um, you know, I, it was pretty, that project was pretty, it was pretty much an architecture project. It right. Was, That's know, interesting. If you had taken a studio brief, um, and removed the, the building from that, I think, um, that's sort of how we approached it sort of just as, as a studio problem. Yeah. Your studio problem. I, it's interesting. I've talked to I've talked to a couple of people on the podcast. I talked to Brian about this. I've talked I have friends who studied architecture and I, I find it so interesting how many people uh study architecture and then kind of go off to do things that are not architecture yeah. in this in that kind of traditional sense of, of kind of designing buildings that are meant to be built. Uh and I'm kind of curious if you have thoughts on that and you mentioned earlier about how so much of your architecture training is filtering into your work whether it's kind of teaching or or even you know kind of approaching this project as a the way you approach this as kind of a an architecture project um what are some of those you know what is it about that education that kind of either primed you or even you know if you want to speak more generally to start to go off and kind of tackle challenges that are maybe not the way we think of architecture. Yeah. Um, that's, it's, 
That's the big question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, so I think, so one way to look at this is through what architecture does. Uh, and, um, you know, if you think about what a building is, it's the convergence of many different things, right? It's, right. it's structural systems, it's lighting systems, it's spatial systems, it's, you know, various kinds of human systems, including culture and identity and circulation and you name it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also very other abstract things like value or values or the, the kinds of uh, uh -huh. um, messages that clients want to transmit to the world about who they are and what their value sets are. Like it's all right. of these things uh, built in a real place at a real time. Um, and it, it's, I, there's something in that, that coalescing of all of those usually competing dynamics, right? Certainly budget is yeah. competing basically with everything else and the realness of a site um, and the realness of a construction process that forces you as an architect to, to contend with a high degree of complexity. Mm. Um, and I, I remember I, I did a side project while I was doing design build work to, to design a renovation for this house um, on Whidbey Island up in the Pacific Northwest. And um, it was the first time that I had really um, worked on my own as a so-called architect. And I, I remember sitting down, of course, I was using a drafting table at the time because I, I was more confident physically yeah. drawing it than using CAD. Um, and just being completely overwhelmed by the prospect of having a blank sheet of paper right. and where I needed to be to submit this to the building department. Like the structural plans had to be done let alone the whole architectural design of it, right. uh, material specifications. It was, it was an absolutely overwhelming process um, or specter of a process. And then I just started doing it, right? Just right. started drawing, working on parts of it, working on uh, sometimes small-scale things, sometimes large-scale things, and working in a very uh, methodical way mm -hmm. through the – thousands of decisions that I had to make to make this thing happen for real. Um, and th again, I think that that's, that illustrates, um, some kind of skill set that seems valuable today, <laughs> right? Where, you know, the, the problems that we're working on today are, um, they're not discrete. There are problems today that are discrete, but the really interesting ones in my view are the ones that are not discrete. They're the ones that are ambiguous they're the ones that are complex they're the ones where mm -hmm. you know multiple systems are creating dynamics that are hard to understand and um I, you know there's probably some thesis that needs to be written on this but th there's a connection between that quite typical architectural process and these kinds of complex problems especially if you're interested in achieving some sort of impact right? right it's not just about analyzing them it's about actually doing something about them um so so that that seems to be part of the the connection I yeah think, i think architecture training is also it's you know it's it's done in a studio and i think as a, a learning environment as a environment right. for open inquiry um whether it's an architecture or sculpture or painting, whatever it is, um, these are important kinds of environments to, to, uh, tackling very complex kinds of challenges. I think that's, that's the kind of setting that needs to be in place and the kind of studio mentality, right. Um, or set that one needs as they go into, um, confronting these kinds of challenges. Yeah. And now did you think I don't mean I don't mean to make a connection here or kind of to to kind of stretch or or kind of like oversimplify your own work. But did you see I, I'm what I'm trying to do is kind of connect this to, to teaching a little bit because it seems like for you, you found that academia and the classroom environment is a way to kind of really put all of this into practice in a kind of very kind of clear and um, 
real way. Would you would you agree with that? Um, well, so my my role at RISD is uh, has changed quite a bit, um, okay. and so and we can we can get into that. But you know, I, I think teaching um, in a in a master's level program is um, it's as real as it needs to be in order to advance <laughs> students' understanding. Yeah, so yeah. The, the last studio that I taught, uh, the topic was, um, I think that the title was designed for neurodiversity. And the argument that oh, I was making was if architects had spent since the uh, signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act and, and before working on sort of universal physical uh, universal access um, design or universal design uh, for physical disability, that there was a need given the rise of mental health issues um, and how sort of prominent that those had become in our society and how much, how improved our understanding of mental health issues had become. There's an equivalent need then to take that on as a problem set right. for sex. So in that case, it gets quite real because then you bring in, you know, people that treat others who have a various form of dementia or uh, OCD or bipolar disorder or whatever it is. Um, and so that, you know, that becomes a studio that's and a, a question that's very much engaged in the real world. Um, but also that, you know, the students then can take that wherever they want it. And that's where it becomes much more um, abstract. So how, how did you kind of start getting into, how did you start teaching or where did that, how did that start to kind of fit into this other work that you were doing? So, um, yeah, so we, after we did the stroke project, uh, we finished, um, our degrees at GSD and Marco then was asked by, um, the former prime minister of Finland, who was then the head of the Finnish innovation fund to come and start to build this capacity at the fund. And, um, you know, that led to Helsinki design lab, which, I'm sure Brian talked more about, but um, my role there was a bit different initially. So I stayed more in an architecture sort of space. So we we launched in 2009 a competition called Low to Know. Oh yeah, which um, was a was that it was sort of great timing because all of the best architects in the world were looking for work. <laughs> but, but also we spent an enormous amount of time putting together the competition approach and the brief and, mm. you know, anticipating how um, we knowing, you know, sort of being on the client side, but knowing the architecture side, how we could get those architects that would apply to perform, to behave or perform more like we did in the stroke project. So like the, right. the, the, the primary uh, evaluation criteria for that competition was the nature of the team and how diverse it was and the kind of breadth or spectrum of issues that it could take on. Um, so that, that's a, that was a kind of clear extension of the architecture world and the, the, stroke project world mm -hmm. and into a um, design and construction space. And, you know, we, we ran that competition. Um, uh, we had five finalist teams that we brought into Helsinki and worked with them. Um, and then a team that was composed of, uh, led by Arup with Sauerbrook Hutton and uh, the user experience design firm in turn called Experientia. Okay. Um, they won that. And so then the process became around actually building this city block that was um, intended not to be a demonstration project, but to help help the market understand how the city could begin to be uh, oh, interesting. decarbonized. Yeah. And that's it's a much longer story that I, I won't <laughs> go into, but um, that was kind of my primary work along with working with Marco and Brian. Um, uh, through building out Helsinki Design Lab, and um, and actually that's what helped bring Dan Hill onto right. our team because he was part of that winning team. And so um, yeah, that that was let's see probably 2000 
12 where that work began to conclude and I switched over to working more with Helsinki Design Lab. And then we closed that in 2013 and um, the fund asked me to stick around and help build out a strategic research team um, at, that would be embedded within Citra within the fund. Oh, okay. And bear in mind this whole time I'm living in Cambridge and commuting to Helsinki. Oh, oh okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's okay. Minor that's in- yeah. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, this, so Brian moved there, obviously right. Marco was there. Um, but I stayed, uh, and, and the idea actually behind that came from a couple of things. One is my wife and I were not ready to move. Um, and another was that, uh, Esco Ajo, who was then the head of Citra as a, you know, as a former statesman, he thought, well, Finland's opportunities and challenges don't start and stop at the border. So maybe mm. we need to take a more, you know, oh. diplomatic core approach to how we staff this organization. Huh. Um, and it was a nice idea. It never <laughs> basically only me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was the diplomatic core. Yeah. But, it is a great uh, idea though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I had always hoped that there would be others <laughs> later on, actually during the uh, strategic research teamwork. We had a guy in Taiwan, um, mm. so it, it kind of happened, but um, right. yeah, not never, never fully realized vision. Um, and so it was actually during that phase of my work with Citra that I started teaching in an effort to to begin to reconnect with practice. Because I, you know, I, being in Cambridge, I could go to the GSD or down here to RISD or to uh, Northeastern or wherever to. Um, sit on reviews. Right. So I had some connection, uh, and I really enjoyed those opportunities. And so I, I thought that, you know, it, it would be a good opportunity to, to do that more in depth. And I, Citra was very happy to have me begin academic work. Right. Um, and, you know, they have a very liberal work week. I think it was 35 hours or something <laughs> that is nice. a full-time job there. So, yeah. Um, so that was easy to do. And so when you, I want to, you mentioned that, that your position at RISD has changed recently. I want to talk about that in a second, but I have one question before that, you know, just when you first started teaching, you're doing that while you're at Citra at the same time, how much, how much kind of overlap or intersections were there between the types of classes you were teaching and the work you were doing with Citra? Were those related? Did you kind of see those as two separate things? How did that kind of fit together for you? Well, there's the clear lineage between the GSD, the stroke project and HDL and the low to no competition mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. all made sense. But <clears throat> at the time, um, Citra was developing what it, what we call the sustainable well-being platform, which was basically an idea that you know, if we're honest about the state of our planet and the state of our societies, then we need to find a way to reorganize society around what we call right. sustainable well-being at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we began to develop that as a societal model, which I think from an American perspective sounds a little bit scary, but from a Finnish perspective, yeah. it makes a, a bit more sense to say that there's a societal model that actually needs to be thought through and put forth for others to, to yeah. think about and adopt. And that, that whole discourse, which was incredibly rich with my colleagues at Citra, um, and I'm, I really miss today that I don't have access, you know, to those two-hour yeah. Wednesday, Wednesday meetings that were really incredible. We're really thinking deeply about the future and about these huge topics of human well-being and sustainability um, and bringing in all kinds of outside sources into that dialogue. Um, that that allowed me to bring a different kind of perspective into the teaching here that, Mm -hmm. you know, my practice by that time had become very systems oriented. Right. But, um, and and I would sort of structure my, my studios as such, but to be able to talk about things, different frames for understanding problems like sustainability, but in a much more, sort of sophisticated way than just the typical energy systems or whatever it is, uh, whatever frame many look at sustainability questions or around human well-being, looking at social 
um, social systems, urban systems, like that, that brought a, a, a different lens into my studio and into the work of, of my students that I think was, was really valuable. And I think for some quite different and exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and for some have, you know, sort of had the same split <laughs> in right. their career where they're it's like, it's hard to go back to a strictly architectural practice. Yeah. If that's something, if, you know, if those sort of systems level issues begin to. And so you were, to be. you were teaching in an architecture, you were teaching architecture students then. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I had something, you know, it's something I think about a lot teaching in graphic design programs and, and this comes up on the podcast a lot. I think it's because it's something I'm trying to articulate and figure out still for myself is that balance isn't necessarily the right word, but that kind of to, to, to show my students, and I think graphic design is a little bit different than architecture, but to show that there's a very traditional way to kind of practice graphic design, but then these skills can also do, can also lead you into all of these other Mm-hmm. other fields that are maybe not what we would call graphic design kind of like what we're talking about in your own career and how how do you think about that you know with your students of kind of giving them the the skills or the tools or the the kind of modes of thinking to be architects but then also to kind of show that these can also then help with other things yeah i, I think balance is the right way um but also i i mean i i left the gsd feeling quite critical of Mm. where at least as it was being realized at the gsd where the field was headed Mm. um because i i felt like the discourse was so insular and circular uh you know (laughs) there were um endless amounts of publications that we were either required to read or that were that everybody was reading where the the writers who were practicing architects usually but you know in some cases theorists who they were wrapping their ideas in sentence structures (laughs) and phraseology and that made it useless to anybody outside such a narrow field and you know i I don't know i architecture is a public act and it's and it's a slow one and it's it's it has huge implications if it's not done well as we know and i I don't know i had i just found that troublesome um and sort of set me on a more critical you know set me apart from the field a little bit Mm-hmm. or it gave me some distance from it and made me more critical of it. And so to a certain extent with my students, I, you know, I never said this to them, but, but underlying my pedagogy and, um, was an idea about, uh, a, a field that's in crisis. If it doesn't find a way to become more relevant, that's so interesting. That, you know, there are all, all kinds of, uh, professions uh, organizations that are and this is not a new idea but are nibbling away at the field of architecture and and the response at least at the gsd at the time was to become more closed and more specialized Hmm. and i and i i just felt that that was uh highly problematic and so i i wanted to expose my students to a, a broader definition of practice knowing that they'll in their other studios and their other classes they'll have access to um you know a traditional architecture training which i think is important but i I think yeah i think it's critical actually but i i think at the same time that they, they need to be exposed to um one a critique of the field and and two different ways you know how their skill sets can be operative in different kinds of environments yeah, I love that. I feel like you are—you actually kind of helped me articulate kind of some of my own feelings around graphic design because I think you know to a lesser extent, graphic design is kind of facing the same same thing. You know, with 
this is a very kind of simple example, but just the democratization of design tools where, you know, anyone can kind of set up a Squarespace site or something like that, that, you know, you don't need to hire a web designer anymore. And so much of graphic design writing is so insular and kind of meant to kind of protect the institution from within instead of starting to look outward. And and I think, you know, there are so many relationships there to architecture that I hadn't made. And the way you talked about that, in a weird way, I think almost crystallizes what I've subconsciously been thinking about <laughs> with my own students. Uh, yes. And so, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, I could talk to you about that for another hour. So <laughs> I, I, I will move on because there's other things I want to talk to you about. But you, you've uh, connected a bunch of things in my mind that I have not connected before. So thank you. Sure. Uh, uh, so you, you know, you mentioned that your 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 job or your role has changed recently. So what are you doing now at RISD? Okay. So um, let's see. It was around the time. It was a year after I taught studio, my first studio at RISD. So it would have been 2015. Uh, I, I worked with the head of the then head of continuing education slash executive education, which was a sort of amorphous body at, at RISD. But um, what had happened is the state, the U.S. State Department had approached RISD and basically said, you know, we have invested a ton of money in design thinking and Luma and all of these toolkits, and we're not seeing the kind of you know, strategic improvement in the capabilities or at least lasting improvement in the capabilities of our workforce. And is there, is there another way? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is sort of getting to the end of a certain arc of, of design thinking right. that, you know, wasn't present in the beginning of stroke, um, <clears throat> of the stroke project. So he reached out to me and I said, Oh, well, you know, I've been, doing this thing at Helsinki Design Lab right. and we have this, this uh, what we call the HDL studio model. Um, I run a few of those at MIT and, um, you know, maybe we can adapt this for what you're looking for. And so basically we took that five day engagement model and built it for a, a RISD um, kind of state department uh, oh, client, so to speak. Huh. And, and so that became the Institute for Design and Public Policy, which that persists today. And we've run several studios uh, since then. The most recent was with the Special Operations Community, um, State and Local Law Enforcement, FBI, oh. a bunch of other uh, security-related people around tackling illicit trafficking. Um, before that, we had uh, a series of studios before the election, actually, on the future of civics. Mm. Um, and then the, that initial studio with State Department act, and actually a, a, a basket of federal agencies um, was around uh, the democratization of energy. Or, oh, interesting. Know, how, do, how do we enable this transition from centralized energy systems to to um, diversified and decentralized energies. So um, that that work had gave me a different relationship to RISD um, and a different profile here. Mm-hmm. And and it was something, you know, as far as I know, there hadn't been much collaboration between, say, DoD and RISD. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and especially in this most recent one, actual uh, special operators <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and RISD. Um, and so actually the, the provost, uh, Pradeep Sharma at the time, he just left earlier this year. Um, he's, you know, he was looking for ways to bring in different ideas about what RISD should be into Mm -hmm. the community, not Mm -hmm. just sort of have a commentary about it, but actually bring bring them into the community because RISD is, um, it's very much a teaching institution. There's not a lot of academic research as we would think about it at Harvard or another research. Oh, interesting. That doesn't really exist here. So, um, it, it can be a little bit hard to change as a result. And so he, 
he brought me in as uh, in a new position called provost fellow, which was, um, uh, to still continue the work with the Institute for Design and Public Policy, but also to help him and others think about different academic futures for RISD. Um, so that, that work, um, was really varied in, in what I did, but it, it leads directly into what I'm doing now. Um, and principally that has been around uh, establishing a, a large partnership, probably the largest um, partnership in RISD's history with, uh, with Infosys, which is a uh, Indian technology company. Oh yeah. Um, and there are there are different elements that, to that that we can get into, but the 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 main sort of my main body of work will now be through what what we're just launching is the Center for Complexity at okay. RISD, and oh. and that's really a home for you know to really push this work in a this kind of all of the work that I've been doing and others have been doing to push it forward. Um, into other domains, other spheres, to look at specifically at how creative practices of, of any kind. So RISD has design, but it also has an incredible fine arts program right. and a, a really amazing liberal arts program. Um, that how those creative practices can engage and navigate complex problems, how they can deal with, in a practical way, deal with uncertainty. Yeah, um, and so that, that's that's sort of where my focus now is beginning to to coalesce around this this new center. It's interesting to kind of hear about this partnership, and and you know, you mentioned kind of design thinking earlier, and and obviously talking about strategic design. I'm this is a weird question. This might be too big of a question to even kind of think about, but I'm, I'm kind of curious about this word design and, and either kind of your relationship to it or why, why you think that that word or the ideas around what design is, is a kind of possible solution or part of a solution to all of these kind of problems that we're talking about. (laughs) Uh, yeah, um, in a few words or less. Yeah, but, right, right. Uh, I, my my relationship with design has evolved mm-hmm. a lot, um, and there were periods of my career, like uh, when I was in uh, at the Finnish Innovation Fund, where I didn't really describe myself as a designer. I I was doing things like trying to figure out what impact investing as a financial process should mean for Finland because Mm. it it wasn't happening there, but it seemed important. And I had access to people at Harvard that were really pushing the field. And so I was trying to do the same in Finland or, you know, around circular economy or, and so my, the tools that I was using, what it was all could be covered within a Microsoft platform right like i yeah i so it was i was not using design tools i was not necessarily using design language and i was therefore not really identifying as a designer and i there were periods where i thought that that's just like the the surgeon identity and the architect identity that maybe the design identity that had grown out of hdl is something that i would also be leaving behind yeah. And I, I think reconnecting to RISD and and practice at least in a classroom, um, and uh, you know, going back into the work of HDL and others that um, have continued and really pushed that work much further than we could um, has reinvested me in that in mm. design as a as a, at least a framework, but. I'm I'm with you and not being entirely settled with you know that as some sort of sufficient definition. Yeah, I remember one of the conversation debates really that we had when we were writing our our first book, we called the Blue Book. Oh yeah, Rachel um, was. Do we need to make an argument about? Um, 
about the kind of training one has to have before we could consider them a designer. Uh, and this is really fraught territory. Yeah. Because right? you, can't, you can't make that kind of judgment. But on the other hand, I do think there is tremendous value that comes out of being in a studio, having a huge question before you, and hour after hour after hour wrestling in a kind of open inquiry that problem. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think that there's, at least we can say there's value in being trained as a designer in a studio environment. And, you know, and then we can say there are other designers that just inherently act that way. Right. But in terms of rigor, um, that's a way to achieve a, a rigorous, uh, you know, methodology, a rigor, a rigorous practice. Um, and I, the way that I've come to think about design now, and this will change probably tomorrow, but, um, <laughs> is that it, it's a way, it, it's a way to describe, a methodical process of continually re-engaging the question of what should be. Mm, I love that. Right? Like, yeah, not just saying that, I mean this, and this would be my critique of design thinking is in the so-called ideation session, that's the closest thing you get to right. engaging this question of what should be. But if you're actually working as a designer, you need to go constantly after that question Yeah, and, and you know, answer it, put that out in the world and see what the world does to it and then have to answer it again based on that new information. Design thinking doesn't do yeah. any of that, right? It's just, it's a linear, largely a linear process. So <clears throat> that that's where I kind of land on it. So whether you call it design or something else, I, I don't know, but I, it's, you know, it's definitely not physics necessarily. Right. right. Um, it, there is a, there's, it is akin to a scientific process, although that's more an you know empirical analytical framework rather than saying here's a current state and we need we want something to be different right right and that's yeah. the start of then asking that question over and over and over yeah that's great i love yeah i love that so much i think that's i think you again have kind of really hit on like kind of that core of that because that's kind of exactly been my question is is design even the right word for so many of these things um and that definition, I think, is is great. My my last two questions. Um, these are questions that I ask everybody to kind of wrap up the conversation. And you've talked about uh, about some of this throughout. But what are the, you know, what are some of the subjects or topics that are on your mind right now, or things that you're kind of thinking about and and wrestling with? Um. Well, I mean, to to sort of close the book on on design thinking. <laughs> yeah. it, you know, I, I think there's a need now to um, really confront the potential threat that that poses to mm -hmm. designers, um, and and try to articulate uh, the um, the deficiencies in a design thinking approach. To you know, I, I hear so often people say, oh, "I'm just going to DT that," as if. <laughs> you know design thinking is just oh. uh, it's just one of many toolkits rather than a mindset and you know right now i'm uh, today and for the next few weeks um, i'm running the seven week program on um, strategic design we call it the RISD strategic design institute and it's part of this emphasis partnership but you know this is this is trying to um first of all, make design thinking a sort of untenable uh, <laughs> to make these people intolerant to, to that idea, to yeah. instill in them mindsets, not tools. Um, and, uh, and to, to push them to be always, always starting with uh, systems thinking, not design yeah. thinking. I, yeah. I accept systems thinking as a, uh, <laughs> as a part of practice. But, um, so anyway, that's, that's one thing. And you know, that, that also is continuing to work from, from right. HDL right. in a certain way. Um, but I, am I'm, I'm really interested in, uh, organizational transformation, whether it's, mm -hmm. uh, 
formal organizations, loose organizations. You know, I mentioned the work with special operations community. Right. They face some really interesting challenges because up until the Afghanistan war, up until 2001 or so, they, they, their war fighters were both war fighters and diplomats, and they knew oh. how to do those jobs equally well. And because of the intensity of Afghanistan and then Iraq, they had to really become war fighters. And this became then a, a generation right. of people that are incredibly skilled kinetic operators, right? But <laughs> right. they need that diplomatic capability. And the interesting thing is that they identified design as a way to help build that capacity. So there's mm. this thing called the soft design way, special operations forces design way. And, you know, we're helping them think through that. Um, so that's an example of the kind of the organizational transformation. Um, but, you know, whether it's UN or whoever, uh, there, there's a very different world out there than the one for which they were designed. Right. And that process of it's not lights on, lights off. We're a new organization. It's a traditional right transitional process and that really engages me um and whatever the topic is that's just sort of side (laughs) side benefit yeah whether it's special operations or un or um we're starting a project right now with n square which is a nuclear threat reduction group wow um so that those are sort of the topics are just new chances to learn yeah Uh, but but there's a similarity in that that need to transform one from one thing to another yeah my last question is and this is this is how i end all of these conversations i'm curious you know if there are you know someone listening to this and is kind of really liking the types of things that you're talking about are there books or writers or or critics or you know even practitioners who have really kind of shaped how you think about this that you would recommend uh recommend as kind of must reads yeah, I mean it's a long. Right. Yeah, long of course. Um, we have a pretty intense reading element to this summer mm. program that we're running. Um, but you know, I I don't know my my reading list has been people like uh, Yuval Harari and Sapiens. Oh, that yeah. that was transformative for me in a lot of ways because you know in that he's he's making the argument that um, that our dominance as a species is a product of our ability to cooperate. And right. the key to our successful cooperation is the ability to tell each other myths and then, and fictions. And then you, you know, you tie that to trying to understand what a, design, a designer does. And uh, the way <laughs> yeah. that I see that is, you know, good designers tell better myths that make mm. more people cooperate in that, that future, that potential future right. to make that, realize so that for me that was also empowering because um you know to illustrate this brilliantly he points at money as the greatest myth ever told right um that it, there's no inherent value in, in myth so that sort of opens up um especially in the organizational transformation space it opens up yeah. the ability to change things that seem unchangeable um that, that there are no natural laws that govern how the UN operates. For instance, it's gravity is not driving it, right? It's myths that people have told each other. And so we can tell new ones. Yeah. Um, so that, that's for me been, been really interesting. Um, there's one that I'm, I'm working into by Helga Nowotny called the cunning of uncertainty. And she was the, she's the president of the European research council, I think. And, um, you know, she she's in that exploring how um, sort of celebrating how uncertainty has helped advance society, you know, through a, a science mm-hmm. lens, but still very relevant. Um, there's another one uh, that is very interesting, I think, um, called uh, Utopia as... Uh, method. So I'm getting that right. Um, I don't know this, which it, it it says that whenever we try to, in a, in in thinking about the future, um, if we're using utopia as a destination, we're not using it correctly Mm. as a way, as a way to think that it, 
it's a it's a methodology to explore alternate futures and to to learn about the present and where we want to go but but if it's ever used purposefully as a you know as a final place of again a destination then it's it sort of destroys any good process so it's it's stuff like that that i'm that i'm really interested in um and of course just you know i I think if if you want to work in a strategic space um you know one thing that i have to do a lot as a facilitator is complicate Mm. uh people's certainty Mm -hmm. about issues and the only way that I can do that. Well, the way that I know how to do that effectively is to provide evidence that their certainty is, at least they shouldn't be so certain, (laughs) right? you know, what they're thinking about. And the way to do that is to constantly be reading, you know, the economist and the times and all of that. Yeah. Especially the longer form, um, analysis of what's happening in our world. Um, because a, a lot of those certainties that they bring into a studio, whether it's a, a special operator or somebody from DOD, it's coming from a, a glance at some issue mm-hmm. and not a deeper investigation. So if you can on the spot, bring that in as a facilitator, it just, you know, it keeps the balls in the air so that yeah. we, we don't lock into any kind of solution. Um, yeah. To, yeah. So I, I don't, that, that's a few. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. That yeah. was a, that was a perfect way to end this. And Sapiens is a book that's come up, a couple times on the podcast and it's been on my list for a while and you've you've uh put me over the edge where i think it's time that i, I <laughs> bump that up the queue it it's it's really transformative yeah. i think adding it to my cart right now okay, uh, <laughs> justin this was so this was so great i i found this conversation so fascinating i'm a big fan of of the way you think about all of these things and um you know, like I said a couple times throughout the conversation, I feel like you've helped me connect things that have just been on my mind in general. So thank you so much for this conversation and, and taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Jared. I appreciate it. This episode was recorded on August 1st, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.